Hey, how's it going, everybody? So we got a discussion-based podcast again today. Just wanted to update on a few things. Um, first off, appreciate everybody listening. It means a lot. I've gotten good feedback and really appreciate it. And again, if you have the time of day to leave a review, really appreciate it. Just helps kind of promote the podcast and spread the word. And likewise, feel free to reach out if there's topics you want to discuss or just questions in general. Best way to get in touch is just nickh at capacitypt.com. Um, but yeah, looking forward to kind of what's coming in the future, some new stuff coming down the pipeline. So I'll keep you guys all in the loop. But today, what I really wanted to discuss were what I would call maybe essentials to being a resilient runner. And so this can be a little bit of a slippery slope where you start just almost breaking down the biomechanics of every single joint that you need for the gait cycle and say that's important. And you could argue that's important, but I just wanted to give some the pillars or keystone structures that need to be assessed, trained, evaluated in order to alleviate pain if you have it or ensure that pain doesn't come. Because if you have any dysfunctions, running is a little bit of a ticking time bomb where eventually the cumulative load is going to catch up to you and dysfunctions are going to arise. Um, and I think all runners in some form have had some form of pain and can kind of relate to that, right? And so what we want to try to do is if you're trying to manage yourself, be proactive in the process. If you're trying to manage a client, your goal is then to be comprehensive and look at the entire kinetic chain and not just the region of pain, i.e. knee pain. So let's get into this. And what I was thinking would be good is to start with kind of a bottom-up approach just because your foot hits the ground and sometimes it's easiest just to process information that way. But this is not by any means uh, listed in order of priority of the most important structures. It's more of, again, going from the bottom up. So first structure to think about, and I'm probably going to give you a five or six here, is great toe extension. First toe, hallux. Does it extend? And if it doesn't extend, how does it influence your connective chain? So great toe extension, you want to see somewhere in that like 60 to 80 degrees of extension. Um, If you're doing this more layman's and you're actually going to pull out a goniometer and measure it, good little ways to test great toe extension is if you have them uh, stand in place, you pull up on their first toe, and you want to see that toe should at least be able to clear like a 45 degree angle or halfway to 90. Looking at it in a static position like that is good, but you want to look at it underneath a tissue tension. Underneath a tissue tension position. So what you do is as you're standing, you have them maybe go to like a 30 degree knee flexion angle, give them the cue or give yourself a cue of, can you drive your knees over your toes with a slight knee bend? You want to then see if there's a change in that amount of great toe extension. When you're running, the foot particularly the plantar surface of the foot is underneath a lot of tissue load so you got to be able to extend underneath load versus more of an open pack position if you see them put tissue load with knee flexion and you notice that that great toe extension dramatically reduces you kind of got something you can start to 
start to attack or address, particularly if there's an asymmetry and that reduced or asymmetrical side is the involved side, that indicates that that might be a driver of their dysfunction. If you're trying to self-assess this, a great way to do it would just be simply putting your foot on like a, a bench, a table, a stool, where you're in more of this like elevated position, you can drive your knee slightly over your toe and again, pull up on your own big toe. If you notice dysfunction, some common things that you can do, uh, self-mobilization of the bottom of your foot or plantar surface, golf ball, lacrosse ball, you can even do it manually with your own fingers. Um, I also really like like a doorway stretch for the great toe. So you're gonna be standing in a doorway. You've got your non-involved foot in the door doorway. You've got your involved foot on the door jam. You've got your great toe extended on the door jam. You then can work at extension of the great toe with knee extension and flexion. You can wind up the leg in three dimensions and angle your foot differently. Um, and I also just like simply like a, a loaded heel raise and even doing eccentric heel raises doing more of like a combination of mobility and stability to get first ray extension. Often if you lack that first toe extension, you lack dorsiflexion, so that's something you'd want to check. All right, item number two. We're going to stay in the foot here, but we're going to progress up. And something that you commonly see is poor control and or hypomobility of the midfoot. So midfoot, right, you've got your navicular, you've got your first, second, and third cuneiforms, but basically it's the transition point from your rear to forefoot. Can you go from your heel to that first ray to the distal part of the foot with control? One thing that might be opposite of what you think is there's a little bit of a pronation component to that. So as you do that transition, the foot should actually collapse. I know we typically think of the foot collapse as a bad thing. We do everything in our power to limit it. But if you can't collapse that foot, you're going to have to collapse it from somewhere else or get pronation from somewhere else, and that usually comes from hip adduction and internal rotation, thus increasing patellofemoral load, maybe driving runner's knee. But back to the midfoot is what you want to see if you wanted to see if there is some midfoot mobility is if you have them do that standing knee flexion or driving their knee over your toe, you should see the knee, uh, sorry, the midfoot splay. So that row of bones kind of widens. So if you pitch the foot, they bend their knee, you should uh, feel your fingers gap or open. The midfoot should also go distally, meaning if you pinch that midfoot, they bend their knee, the midfoot should migrate forward towards the toes. If you're not seeing play in that forward migration, you likely have some stiffness. You can also just do a self, or sorry, a quick assessment on just the bone mobility. If you push it, is there any give or play to it? Another assessment for midfoot mobility, the ability to pronate, is just a standing trunk rotation. So if you're standing, you twist your trunk contralaterally and ipsilaterally, you should see some play in the foot. So if you're looking at a foot and you twist towards that same side, you should see that midfoot supinate and open. If you twist to the other side, you should see that midfoot collapse and go towards the ground. Quick assessments of kind of midfoot mobility. There's more we can get into there, but those would be things I would start with. And again, you can assess on yourself if you're kind of assessing yourself. What could you do then to mobilize the midfoot and control the midfoot? So for mobility, one thing I like to do is like a kneeling dorsiflexion mode where you're on one knee, you have your involved foot forward, and you drive your knee over your toe. But as you're driving your knee over your toe, you're going to bias your foot into an inversion position, toes in. You're going to put 
your hand on top of the foot and you're going to smash that midfoot into the ground as you drive your knee over your pinky toe because your foot's in this inward position and you kind of do some midfoot smashes with dorsiflexion. You could also stand up and drive your knee over your toe and use your opposite heel to kind of smash your midfoot. All great ways to do it. I've also seen a lacrosse ball or utilize a lacrosse ball underneath the outer foot, the fifth ray, and you do that standing trunk rotation with a lacrosse ball underneath the outer foot and it helps get that pronation or collapse to the midfoot. Great ways to uh, stabilize the midfoot so you don't just over pronate or over collapse is just working on single leg stability and balance. You could do single leg clock reaches, you could do foot yoga, you could do short foot exercises, uh, you could do single leg squats, single leg heel raises, all I think foundational common exercises, but can you control that tripod of the foot, heel, little toe, big toe, without excessively collapsing? That was number two. Going to number three, let's move up the kinetic chain. So common things that you see wrong in runners that if you wanna have a durable, resistant, resilient body is looking at hamstring strength, particularly eccentric control of terminal knee extension at heel strike, as well as that initiation of the swing phase of that active knee flexion in mid-swing. So how might you see this in the gait cycle? So if you're observing gait, either running or walking, if they have poor eccentric control of terminal knee extension, meaning when your heel hits, can they actually keep a little bend in their knee? What you'll see is again, they won't extend the knee all the way, so they'll run with almost like this shortened stride or shortened knee, where it's in this permanently flexed position. You might see almost like a drop to that side because the knee's more flexed versus this nice smooth running cycle. Um, what you'll also see is usually the foot will start to twist because they can't control it, they'll often try to compensate with a tibial rotation. You'll also see that when you're going into that kind of mid-swing transition from contact phase to swing phase, where you'll get this, we call this like external rotation whip, where as you flex, the foot will turn outward, the shin will deviate outward, and you almost get this like duck walk swing to the gait cycle. And again, that indicates that you don't have good hamstring control. That hamstring control will lead to that lateral whip, will often lead to knee pain, will lead to poor foot loading, can even lead to uh, true hamstring tendonitis or hamstring pain that you often see in runners. How do you then address this? First off with the hamstring, I don't wanna go down pathway too much but it's connected to the pelvis and most often than not when you have hamstring dysfunction there's some sort of pelvic mobility and stability issue but let's just stick with the hamstring in itself ways that you want to assess hamstring mobility and strength you can do a supine active straight leg raise you can do it passively and actively assessing for neuromuscular uh, sorry, neural tension, as well as neuromuscular control of the active straight leg raise, looking for symmetry. But you should at least have a, a 60 degree passive and active supine straight leg raise to indicate that you can reach the ground with your heel when you're about to initiate contact. Um, another assessment you can do for just hamstring knee flexion strength, which I like, is what I would call like a hamstring lag test. 
So if you stand, lean your body against a table, and you pull your heel to your butt, if you let go of your heel, can you keep the heel on your butt? Or does it drop? Inevitably, it's going to drop, but is there an asymmetrical drop where maybe it drops two or three inches from your butt on your non-involved inside, but almost drops like a 90-degree knee bend angle on your involved side? Um, Another hamstring test outside of just doing hamstring manual muscle testing is the ability to control the hamstring at variable ranges. And so by that I mean you're doing your standard 90 degree knee flexion manual muscle test. Test it with tibial internal and external rotation or toes in and out. Test in the shortened range with tibial internal and external rotation. Test at a lengthened range with more knee extension, again with variable foot positions. That way you can really bias the range and rotational degree of hamstring dysfunction. So what are some good ways to start to stabilize this? So I love the good old-fashioned Swiss ball hamstring curl because you can train the hamstring in variable ranges. So you're in supine, you've got your involved leg on the Swiss ball, you start in a shortened position, and you eccentrically control from a flex to a fully extend position, almost mimicking that heel strike. Um, Another great exercise is obviously a single leg deadlift because you're controlling the body in a single leg, multiple planes of motion. You also have to control your foot and pelvis. So it's a great functional approach to hamstring stability. I also really like Nordic curls because again, you're controlling that eccentric stability with pelvic stability. And the Nordic curl, if you don't know, is you're in a tall kneel position. Often you need assistance manually or with a band to slowly control your body leaning to the ground without letting your hips bend. So you're just staying in full hip extension, controlling active knee extension from your hamstring in a tall kneel position. All right, stay with me. We're going to go through two more things. Number four would be pelvic stability. And we'll call that hip stability at the same point. So pelvic and hip stability, that's a huge gamut, right? But Something that we often lack is frontal plane stability, so that ability to control ab and adduction of your pelvis and hip. We lack rotational control, so that ability to control internal and external rotation at variable hip and knee angles. And then we often lack control for the runner in pelvic extension, including hip extension. So how do we tell if that's going on? So one which I think we're all familiar with is just a single leg bridge test. You should be able to control end range, hip extension, full single leg bridge for 30 seconds without rotation of your pelvis, without hamstring cramping, without low back strain. And that common compensation pattern you see, they'll lack hip extension range, they'll achieve it through lumbar extension, and they'll do it a lot of a hamstring dominated hip extension. How do you tell if you've lacked hip extension outside of looking at the bridge test? You can do it passively with prone. I like looking at it actively as well. So I do them in sideline. And so by that, I mean your sideline, I'll have a wall behind them. I want them to achieve hip extension with knee flexion. So that kind of 90 degree knee extension angle. And I want to see that thigh to be able to clear midline, pushing their foot into the wall and maintain it. If they can't push into the wall and get that thigh past midline into hip extension, I know they don't have active 
or passive control of hip extension. Other ways to assess for pelvic stability is to almost look at segmental control of lumbar flexion and pelvic flexion. So a test you could do there is if they're on their back, they have a tabletop position with their legs, so hips at 90, knees at 90, shins parallel to the ground. Can they vertically raise their thighs, meaning thighs, knees go straight up towards the ceiling, slowly flexing your pelvis and eventually your lumbar spine one segment at a time without bringing your knees towards your chest. So it's not like a massive flexion, it's more of an elevation of your lower quarter. And you see here is that, you know, this is like a lower abdominal test, but it's also a test of flexion. And more often than not, people can't vertically raise their thighs and knees towards the ceiling. They end up having to bring their knees towards their chest because they have no lower core strength. And what that's gonna do is when they get into the shock absorption phase of the gait cycle, they're gonna bias into that extension holding pattern of their spine if they don't have good anterior core stability. The last thing I wanna get into, which is our fifth item here, is getting into thoracic extension and rotation, in particular rotation. Your arm swing for running compromises about 30% of your running strength or speed or power, however you wanna look at it. Arm swing is driven a lot by thoracic mobility, particular rotation. We sit a lot, our thoracic spines get rounded or kyphotic, we lack scapular stability, posterior core strength, and we often lack a lot of that rotation. Our breathing influences this too. If we can't breathe particularly diaphragmatically, if we breathe a lot from our neck, we end up getting in a lot of rib and thoracic spine restriction. So some ways to tell if you lack thoracic rotation, you could do a seated thoracic rotation. So hands behind head, sit, squeeze a pillow or ball between your knees, don't lose the pillow or ball, and twist your trunk. You should roughly in a seated position get about 90 degrees of rotation where you turn your trunk all the way to your right or left side. Your hands behind your head give you a little visual of where their trunk angle is truly at. Um... You could also look at uh, more flexion-based rotation. So you can go in quadruped, hands and knees, bring your butt to your heels where you lock out your lumbar spine, put one hand behind your head and try to twist with that same side showing your chest to the room. Again, here you should be able to get about 45 degrees or halfway to 90 with each twist. So thoracic mobility and stability are important then to train. So you could do some sideline rotational work like open book exercises. You could do quadruped rotational work. You could do foam roll to help assist with extension or even create a peanut with lacrosse balls and get more localized extension. Breathing exercise in the 90-90 tabletop position can kind of work on rib and thoracic mobility from the inside out. Um, but scapular stability is important for thoracic rotation, as well as core and trunk rotation stability, so getting lumbar, pelvic, hip rotation strength. But a cool drill, particularly for runners, to work on arm swing, thoracic mobility, and to visualize if it's influencing their lower half, is you can sit in a long sit position on like a pad, so legs out straight, trunk up tall, butt on a pad to cushion your rear. And if you're sitting and you violently swing your arms, your butt should bounce up and off the ground. 
And you'll notice that some people, when they swing, they simply don't get enough arm swing or enough arm power, and they're not getting the pop of their butt up off the ground. So it's a good little test slash exercise to work on arm speed and strength to influence kind of lower body strength. So what's stop there? Again, we can go even all the way up to the cervical spine and shoulder. But the five things that I think that any resilient runner should have pretty good motion and control of, again, were great toe extension, midfoot mobility and control, knee flexion, terminal extension, as well as general knee flexion strength, pelvic stability, as well as thoracic range of motion, particular rotation, control, and stability. You got a slew of tests and exercises. If you're wondering where you're at, give them a try. If you're looking at a running client in the future, give them a try. See what you think. All right, guys, appreciate it. Take care.